This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. Thank you, iSimulate. His mind went blank. Everything he'd learned in Nancy's lectures and the textbooks, all that practice on mannequins, the illicit time spent in the dog lab at Scaife Hall, gone, all of it, poof. He just needed to adjust the stool, but there was no time for that. He had a patient not breathing, a surgeon ready for surgery, an amphitheater full of students watching into the center of it all. Saffer kept time. He'd have to make do. Deep breath. Here we go. By the spring of 1969, the new ambulances Saffer first conceived of years before started rolling in. Ford Econoline vans like the mystery machine. They cost 13 grand apiece, with a crown of lights and sirens ringing the top in an orange and white paint scheme that would be adopted by other services for decades to come. Each had a large emblem on the side of the door that read, Freedom House Ambulance. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. Those snippets you just heard were paramedic and author Kevin Hazard, reading from his most recent book, American Sirens, the incredible story of the black man who became America's first paramedics. Undoubtedly, Medic Mindset listeners have heard of or read his first book, A Thousand Naked Strangers, which is a memoir of Kevin's own experience on an ambulance in Atlanta. The book is gritty, hilarious, relatable, and very much his story. In American Sirens, Kevin successfully tackles the important work of telling someone else's story. The story of 24 black men in Pittsburgh's Hill District who built Freedom House, the world's first paramedics. It's our EMS origin story, and it belongs in our collective consciousness. It's carefully researched and beautifully presented. And it's a story that until Kevin came along, that was in danger of being erased. In this episode, we have the unique opportunity to hear two full chapters from American Sirens read in Kevin's voice. Listen in. And stick around to the end to get details on how you can have a chance to win a free signed copy of American Sirens. Kevin signed this copy. He sent it my way for me to send to a Medic Mindset listener because he knows you guys are a brainy bunch. You're deep thinkers who read and reflect and will share the story of these men who started it all. All right. You ready? All right. There we go. So you're lucky I had kids because I didn't used to be able to read aloud at all. All right, here we go. In the small, crowded Freedom House Bay Station, just a few feet from the entrance to the Presbyterian University ER, a phone rang. It was a rotary dial, black originally, but later replaced by a red one. This was the hotline, and when it rang, Ruth Gardner, one of the dispatchers, all women who would play a critical role in the success of Freedom House, stopped what she was doing to snatch the receiver. Ruth was young, hair pulled up in a shorter version of what the Ronettes might wear. She listened and started scribbling on a notepad. In Pittsburgh, calls for help went first to the city's public safety building, and someone requesting an ambulance in the hill or Oakland or downtown was passed along to Freedom House. Ruth wrote down the particulars, address, nature of the emergency, whether the patient was stable, critical, or already dead, and then hung up. She passed the call to Dave Razor and Leroy Morant, who stood their third time in an hour and rushed out. The automatic door swung shut behind Razor and Morant as they stepped out into the night. Razor was 24 with two kids and had graduated from Fifth Avenue High, former bookbinder, former laborer, 
formerly laid off, a round, welcoming face with a pair of eyeglasses. When the training program wrapped back in June, he finished at the top of the class, but that mattered less now than his ability to use all that information, and he'd already begun to show it, to treat the sick and injured, to control a crowd on the scene. He moved with casual grace toward the ambulance. His partner, Morant, was wire thin, with hair shaved close to the skin, all the way up to the sides like a mohawk. In they went, turned the key, pressed the gas. The engine rumbled to life. When they arrived, their patient was unconscious on the floor. Another Oakland overdose. Maybe breathing, maybe not. Razor didn't need the associate degree in sociology he was working toward to explain why they were here, what had led this young man to desperate straits. He was a native son and needed only to look out the window and see the wood and glass still in the street from April, block after block obliterated, never repaired, a neighborhood left broken, demoralized. And so was their patient. They got right to work. An overdose is one of those peculiar emergencies, at once desperate and pedestrian, a killer that can, in the right hands, be easily killed himself. It's identified as often by the things that aren't there as those that are. Like a patient found living in a house that's not a home, no furniture or clothes, nothing at all that says someone lives here. Probably the man at their feet was turning gray all over. He definitely wasn't breathing. They repositioned his head, which was bent so far back it was blocking his own airway. Kneeling now, they ripped equipment from its packaging. Maybe they couldn't innovate, not yet, but they could still breathe for this man. A deep puff of oxygen from the portable ventilator, fingers gripping the limp jaw to get a good seal. Here it was all about technique. Do it wrong, and up comes a hot geyser of stomach water. They'd practiced this a thousand times under the particular and suspicious eyes of anesthesiologists. The chest rose, then fell. Quick check for a carotid pulse, just below the jawline, right where they'd seen it back at the morgue. Showed no heartbeat at all. They started compressions right there on the floor. This was the kind of place ambulance cops had once avoided, and the morticians in their hearses refused to go. The kind of patient who without Freedom House would get no treatment, no transport, no nothing. Still, could be a hopeless feeling to crunch away on a lifeless chest, beating for a heart with a million reasons to stop. But Razor Morant kept going. These children of the father of CPR, working their patient all the way to Presby, where later he'd stand to walk out days or resurrected, confirmation that miracles can happen among us. This was November 1968. Five months before, on July 15th, a call had gone out for a woman with seizures on a city bus at the 3900 block of Forbes Avenue. She was transported without incident to Presby, and her routine and largely unremarkable emergency marked the official start of Freedom House Ambulance Service. The first call for a corps of medics at Wood, in short order, began showing the way for a nation in need of change. But plenty of work remained. Freedom House had coasted through training on financial fumes. Hallen worked furiously to raise money, and by July his efforts began to bear fruit. He got money from the Ford Foundation, the Richard King Mellon Foundation, and the Kaufman Foundation. The city kicked in, and so did the U.S. Labor Department and the Office of Economic Opportunity. He raised enough money to last six weeks, and kept on going until there was enough, about 300000 to operate through the end of the year. Their agreement with the city to provide 24-hour ambulance service in the Hill District in the adjoining neighborhood of Oakland was covered financially but only just barely. If the medics knew about Freedom House's dire financial situation, they didn't let it affect the quality of care they delivered. In the first year alone, they responded to nearly 6,000 calls and were credited with saving more than 2,000 of their neighbors from heart attacks, gunshots, stabbings, and overdoses. Their average arrival time was under 10 minutes, and in nearly every case, they delivered that patient to the hospital alive. 
When out on calls, they served as walking billboards for the service, turning out in their pressed white uniforms to show off their equipment to society women from Squirrel Hill or teach local residents how to perform CPR. A second class of paramedic students followed the first, and within a year, 19 more men would hit the streets. By the spring of 1969, the new ambulances Saffer first conceived of years before started rolling in. Ford Econoline vans like the Mystery Machine. They cost 13 grand apiece, with a crown of lights and sirens ringing the top in an orange and white paint scheme that would be adopted by other services for decades to come. Each had a large emblem on the side of the door that read, Freedom House Ambulance. Saffer was a pioneer in a burgeoning field of critical care medicine, and after arriving in Pittsburgh, started what is considered America's first ICU. He envisioned Freedom House as a critical aspect of advanced care and referred to these ambulances as mobile ICUs or MICUs. They were modified and equipped to exceed national recommendations, admittedly a low bar, and carried wall-mounted suction units, portable oxygen and airway equipment, defibrillators, cardiac monitors, plus all the splinting and bandaging gear you could dream up. As he'd insisted, there was room to spare, with a seat at the head of the stretcher where a single medic could command and control patient care all the way to the hospital. That same year, Freedom House would also add a third precinct downtown to its area of control. The dream of a first-class ambulance service was finally coming true. If they were outrunning their initial expectations and proving to be far more than a jobs program for young men from a poverty-stricken neighborhood, then the reason was, as Hallen foresaw, that it was not just for, but of the people it served. A sense of ownership stretched from the mechanics and dispatchers all the way up to leadership. Pride came as much from what they did as from who was doing it. The base station at Presby was full of big personalities, but the largest of all was night shift supervisor Walt Brown. Walt was impossible to ignore. He was big and loud, sucked all the air out of the room, then breathed his own back into it. You didn't have to figure Walt out. He'd tell you who he was. Player, gambler, ladies' man. He would tell people he'd been a hoodlum, been in jail, been a nom. A guy with the imposing physical presence to be both charming and menacing all at once. He was a man in perpetual motion, always searching for an angle and forever in the midst of a crisis. Trouble with a new girl or an old girl or both all at once. One of them needed a new car, a new air conditioner, a new job, anything. And there was Walt, saddled with the problem and looking for an answer, telling you about it as he went. There was Curtis Scott, a former bookie and gambler in his mid-60s who joined Freedom House because he didn't have social security and wanted something to pass on to his kids. Harvey Gandy was a former cab driver who could pick a lock in the snap of a finger. Ron Reagan was there, quiet and understated, but the heir of an accountant. So was Pearl Porter, a dispatcher who talked as much off the phone as on. It was an eccentric group, something that felt like family, with everyone coming together for the same vital purpose. Their immediate and unqualified success meant to the Freedom House board that while ambulance companies were rapidly going out of business, their public-private model worked. To City Hall, it meant the police weren't the only ones who could handle the growing number of emergency calls. To Saffer, it meant simply that lives would be saved. He fired off a letter to the mayor urging him to expand the program. The time for action has come, he wrote. In the Hill, Freedom House went beyond the practical or tangible. To their community, the paramedics were souls of a common struggle whose meaning and importance need not be quantified or explained. A candle is more than a flicker when you've been lost in the darkness. It was the biggest thing, described Lorraine Green, who lived in the hill. I don't think I'll ever forget the way they made me feel. They all just walked tall. You could tell they were proud of themselves. A lot of us were. On calls, kids gathered around them, awe and excitement. Proof, perhaps, that they too might go any direction they chose. The medics themselves felt it too. Arthur Davis, who admitted back in the beginning to have a, having a funny mind, had become obsessed with the job. 
After just a year, it was his life, his calling. Dave Thomas turned 21 on an ambulance and had already helped deliver five babies. Ushering young lives into this world had turned his own around. The effects of all that success in the first year were wide-ranging, yet perhaps it all came down to this. For far too long, black men from the hill had been spoken of and spoken for, but rarely heard themselves. Now they were out front, paramedics, leading a movement whose path was uncertain. With each step and in each way, they were breaking new ground. Arthur Davis summed up the mood in a way that touched all at once the hope and enormity of the moment. It makes me proud, he said. And for my mother, I'm somebody. I loved it. Can I say some comments? Lay it on me. I liked the reference to the mystery machine. (laughs) And then I appreciated this visual you create of all the medics being this eccentric blend of misfits. Whenever I'm in a room full of paramedics, I just kind of look around and notice how we're all so different. Yeah. It's a weird, weird mix. I was just talking to an EMT class the other day and I was like, (laughs) who are, you know, it's like people from the, you know, from the Hills, people from the hood, like a whole weird mix of people, like all the, all the personalities that you find. Yeah. It's strange. It's a strange group. And then I have a question for you. You and I have talked a lot about storytelling and how to do that because medic mindset sometimes has this element of storytelling and I've wanted to learn from you through the years. And I'm curious about the research that went into this book because when I look at this book, you know, 300 pages, um, you're doing things like referencing that letter written to the mayor Mm -hmm. where it says the time for action has come. Is that an actual letter that you read in your research? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, nothing is made up. The beauty of people like Peter Saffer and Nancy Caroline is that they have a good sense of their place in history. And so they save things. So their archives are chock full of awesome stuff. You know, obviously thousands of contemporaneous newspaper accounts. So newspaper accounts and then talking to some of these paramedics? Yeah, interviews, interviews they've given through the years. You know, those things exist out there. Like there's, I talked to George McCary a couple times, but I also found an interview that he gave to somebody in Australia. I found the transcript of it. There's interviews that people, there's one guy who I spoke to a couple of times and then didn't really want to speak to me very much, but he'd given dozens of interviews through the years. And um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of people. Yeah. Because you seem to know uh, kind of the essence of a lot of these characters. Like you said, one of them was kind of like an accountant you know, quiet and meek. Somebody described him. Somebody described him as that. I said, uh, I said, what was he like? And, uh, cause you know, he's the guy who begins and ends the book essentially. And, and I said, what was he like when you were working with him? And this woman was like, ah, oh, he was, he was quiet. He was kind of like hanging out with an accountant. Like he was just really mellow. The previous year had been a long stretch of ominous weather for Freedom House and it didn't break. Not really until the spring of 75. It was like a heat wave had settled in and gotten trapped, pushed down by conditions from above, flattening and expanding, growing until it became a weather system in its own right, sucking in every drop of moisture and leaving only an eerie void that people living on farms in the Midwest or trailers in the Southeast referred to as tornado weather. When unsettling stillness finally breaks, it feels in the moment sudden. But of course, it's been there all along, slowly building. And it started with the advanced life support upgrade class. 
The class was Saffer's idea, his design, though it most definitely wasn't his anymore. It belonged to Nancy now, and the first thing she did was tinker with it, slightly expanding some areas, blowing others out entirely. It had become about more than education. Now it was about survival, about making Freedom House indispensable, about letting everyone everywhere know they were as good as it got, certainly too good to bury alive. What started out as ambitious in that classically Saffer way only got more so in Nancy's hands. Every day from 8 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon, Medic sat in the classroom in Presby's Scafe Hall, a big concrete sarcophagus of a building, sharpening their knowledge to a fine point. The class was supposed to put a cap on everything they'd been doing, but to get there, Nancy brought them back to basics. She started with a review of anatomy and physiology. This is a heart. Here's the aorta. Before beelining to what can go wrong, aortic aneurysm and what signs a patient might complain of, lower back pain. Finally, circling the wagons around what findings to expect on physical exam, unequal pulses. Nancy's teaching style was all about building blocks, foundations, a walk-before-you-run approach that was frustrating for guys who'd been practicing medicine in the streets for seven years. They pushed back, particularly on Nancy's insistence that they learn the exact wording and cadence doctors use when giving a patient report at the hospital. John, in particular, didn't understand why they had to know this. Half the times doctors laughed or just walked off while he was talking, and if they didn't want to listen, then why bother saying it? This, to Nancy, was exactly the point. She knew how it felt to be overlooked or talked down to. People still referred to her as a pixie or pert or a little woman with a big job. The problem might have been the doctors, but the fix would have to come from the medics themselves. If you don't learn to speak like they do, she said, they'll never stop laughing. So John kept working. They all did. And Nancy rewarded their patients with access. Every day after class, she led them places they weren't supposed to be, all over the hospital, on every floor, through any door. She'd pressure Saffron into pressuring someone else into giving them access to whatever forbidden zone she wanted to enter, and if that failed, she'd simply barge right in. They didn't exactly break in, but they weren't always invited either. Nancy just took them. The dog lab, off-limits to everyone but medical students, was one of those places. Nancy snuck them in one day, quietly divided them by twos, and then gave each pair a live dog. John was an animal lover. There didn't seem to be any way to get out of this, so he sedated his dog, and while it was unconscious, intubated it. He was marveling at how similar a dog's anatomy was to that of a human when he realized his dog's heart had stopped beating. John immediately started CPR, a use of the technique probably Saffer himself never anticipated, and to his relief, revived the dog. Day after day, they stormed through doors marked authorized personnel only, heads turning in surprise at the sight of this young white woman and her entourage of black men. To walk into the critical care unit as if you belonged, to pick up a chart and take vitals, to check ventilator settings and med doses, question nurses, question doctors, to John it was the greatest feeling on earth. He felt 10 feet tall, not bulletproof maybe, but something close to it. He came to revere Nancy and follow her anywhere, believing that anything he needed to succeed, she would make happen. One day John walked into class and Saffer was there, waiting for him. Really, he didn't know Saffer at all. Certainly never, they'd never spoken. He'd seen the guy and heard everyone else speaking about him in the sort of hushed tones of people who respect, but also, and even more so, fear the man they work for. To John, Saffer was a suggestion, a whispered name, Peter, as in Peter thinks, Peter said, Peter expects, don't make Peter come down here. But now Peter was here, and he'd come for John. Saffer led him to the OR, which John, still uncomfortable around doctors, entered as quietly and unobtrusively as possible after scrubbing in. In front of him was a surgical gurney, and on it lay a patient as ready for surgery as someone could get, flat on his back, undressed, shaved, and sedated. The surgeon was there, and so was the OR tech. Seated at the head was an anesthesiologist. Beyond them, watching from the amphitheater, was a handful of medical students. 
John presses back to the wall. Everyone surrounding the patient was masked, gowned, and gloved. The whole area sterile. Next to the patient sat an endotracheal tube made of stiff red rubber and a laryngoscope, both within easy reach of the anesthesiologist, who was clearly about to innovate the patient. John was excited. Safra had brought him all the way here just to witness it. The doctors continued their preparations, and at the last possible moment, Safra told the anesthesiologist to stand up and John to sit down. John froze. He gasped. Fear shot through him, hot at first, then cold as the adrenaline dump hit his bloodstream. Scared as he was, he had no choice. Either do this or be sent home and made to look a fool. So he stepped forward. A small black stool waited for him at the head of the patient, but when John sat down, it was too low. The anesthesiologist must have been taller, a lot taller, needed less clearance because seated, John could hardly see. His mind went blank. Everything he'd learned in Nancy's lectures and the textbooks, all that practice on mannequins, the illicit time spent in the dog lab at Scaife Hall, gone, all of it, poof. He just needed to adjust the stool, but there was no time for that. He had a patient not breathing, a surgeon ready for surgery, an amphitheater full of students watching into the center of it all. Saffer kept time. He'd have to make do. Deep breath. Here we go. The rules were the same as they'd been back in 67, the last time Freedom House medics had tried to pull this off. 30 seconds to successfully place the tube and confirm its position, or else Saffer yells time, and they yanked John from the seat. Craning his neck to see, John tilted the patient's head back to open the airway, and then blindly reached with his right hand for the laryngoscope. He shifted the tool to his left hand, felt the cold of the metal in his palm, slipped the blade into the patient's mouth, and then lifted. Viewed upside down, an airway is disorienting. The soft tissue comprising the lower half of the mouth, the lips, the cheeks, tonsils, a giant flapping tongue, all dangle down from a jaw whose organizing musculature has been sent to lunch by the sedative. Like a second grade class whose teacher has left the room, the mouth at this point devolves into chaos. Everything hangs loose and rolls around and must be scooped up and lifted out of the way before you can even peek inside. And even then, the task looks far from simple because the pathway to the lungs, which John was anxiously and desperately trying to find, lies directly on top of another pathway, the esophagus, leading to the stomach, which isn't just larger, but also has yet another loose flap that obscures the target. This flap must also be lifted, but it's awfully far back and it moves and it can be difficult to pin down. Most people on their first or second or fifth try thread the wrong opening and end up in the stomach. John's heart was beating so fast by now the blood was pumping in his ears. Maybe Saffer was counting down the seconds, but John couldn't hear it. He could see, though, just enough. And what he saw when he lifted the blade was the almond-shaped opening of his patient's trachea. Bingo. Now freeze. Don't blink. Don't breathe. Don't anything. He wanted to celebrate or yell, but this wasn't exactly the place for that. And anyway, he was still more scared he'd lose the thing. Ever so slowly, his eyes locked on the trachea. He reached for the tube and gently slid it into the patient's mouth, past the tongue, into the throat, and finally, through the opening and down the airway itself. He was somewhere else now, his muscles moving independently of his mind. The laryngoscope came out. He secured the tube, connected to the ventilator, and gave one quick puff. The anesthesiologist listened to the sound of air going in, checking to see if the ventilations caused the liquid gurgle of air filling the stomach or the steely swish of air flowing into the lungs. John waited. Safra waited. Everyone waited. Then with a nod, he said, yep, all good, and it was. It was all good. John had successfully placed the tube. Safra was elated. It had been a long battle, a personal one, weighted with responsibility, seasoned by failure, but at last they'd gotten there. The Freedom House medics were innovating. 
Less than a year after nearly a walking away from the cause he had devoted over a decade of his life to, the medics were once again on the crest of the wave. John, the final step of his ALS upgrade complete, walked out of the OR, shaking and trembling but smiling from one ear to the other. Mm, That was damn good. I love that. I think every paramedic will love that part because we've all had our first time intubating, and often that intubation was in an OR. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a weird thing. I can remember mine like it was yesterday in somebody's living room. So in your paramedic school, you didn't get to do OR clinical rotations? Yeah, but I was working with a guy when I was in school, and he was like, you're a paramedic school, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and we're at the scene of this arrest, you know? Oh, so it was like before you'd had those clinicals. Yeah, he just hands me the roll, and he's like, go for it. I was like, all right. And, you know, the upside was that my regular partner had um, always made me assemble the tube and everything. And so that part was very easy. Like I quickly got everything ready, which, you know, that's one of the biggest barriers. And uh, the other thing that helped out um, was the guy was really thin. He was old and thin. And so, and he had this long neck, this stork neck. So when I... When I lifted, it was all right there, highway to the bottom. So, which gave me the absolutely the wrong impression of how it was going to be. It's like you know uh, a batter who hits a first, who hits a home run on the first pitch ever thrown to him. So from then on, for the rest of his career, he swings at every first pitch. Um, I always opened a mouth expecting to see everything, and when I didn't, I would immediately start to panic. And then finally, one day somebody was like, what, dude, like they're all fucking hard. Like one out of a thousand is easy. All the rest are impossible. Like, don't worry about it. You, you'll find it. So. In your reading just now, you said that Nancy Caroline was described as pert. I don't know that term. Because I looked it up too. Because I, I've heard it before. I've never heard that term. You've never heard it? I don't think so. I've heard it. Maybe it's just, maybe it's a, um. Like a northeastern thing, it didn't. It, it's not. It doesn't exist down here. But uh, it's an adjective of a girl or young woman, attractively lively or cheeky. And then the second is of a bodily feature or garment, attractive because neat and jaunty. She had a pert nose and deep blue eyes. So it's you know uh, by nature you know the sort of a physical description of like small, cute. It's right in line with Pixie. In fact, she. Um, I, I was kept trying to find a way to work it in, but it just like I could never find the right place to put it. And this was really the easiest place to put in, like that she understood these guys because she too had been um and it but pert the description of pert came to her. She submitted an article, and I don't remember the journal now. She submitted an article to a medical journal and won the grand prize. And it was about dealing with death in the ICU. The description of her by the magazine was like, and the pert young doctor, Nancy Caroline. Interesting. Um, which I'm quite certain, quite certain that like the pert young doctor, Kevin Hazard was probably not. You know, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, was not. And, and when she was, I think when she was at AMREF, which is like not a, a, a small job, working as a flying doctor in East Africa and like training a couple dozen doctors and, you know, flying in and out of various types of disasters. She was the first person on the ground after a massacre 
I mean, she like it was a crazy job, but there was a write up of what she was doing. It described her as a little woman with a big job, and it was something else somewhere. Like so dismissive to like have this physician who's like clearly a fucking badass working in East Africa, flying into massacres, and the uh, you know the d bag who's writing this article describes her as a little woman. Like I think that was a headline: "Little woman with a big job," which I can't imagine. Like she was so smart. You know, you graduate high school early. You do all the things that she did, right? Like emergency care in the streets is what we know here, but in Israel, she's known for other things entirely, bigger things than just a textbook. And all these, and and to be, I just can't imagine. I can't, it would be, I get so angry when people, and I feel I'm being patronized to, it really makes me angry. And, you know, that's part of, I think that's all part of like my, deeply complicated, <laughs> flawed psychology. But I can't imagine being someone as accomplished as her and having to deal with that. Like I can imagine how angry that would make you. So Maybe it's part of what fueled her. Probably. Yeah, probably. Thanks for listening. I want to hear from you to enter your name in the hat for a chance to win Kevin Hazard's signed book, American Sirens. Simply send me an email to ginger at medicmindset.com. I'll read every word you write, but I don't want it to feel like homework. So say as little or as much as you'd like. I'll take emails until midnight on the last day of November. And then on December 1st, I'll send it out to one very lucky listener. Thanks for listening. We are in our seventh year together with Medic Mindset, and I'm so thankful that you've allowed me a chance to spend time in your ears. It's truly an honor. For years, I've encouraged paramedics to get degrees, but when I carefully listened to the stories of paramedics, I realized there are challenges that have to be addressed. Things like 2448s, childcare, mortgages. I'm pleased to share that I have an answer that matches what I know about the working paramedic who tells me they are ready to pursue a degree. Eastern Kentucky University offers a bachelor's in emergency medical care that is 100% online and allows college credit for existing state or national registry certifications. EKU is a nationally known program, and I trust them to take good care of Medic Mindset listeners who want to start their journey toward a degree. You can go to the show notes for this episode for a link or simply use go.eku.edu backslash medic to get started. <laughs>